in our series, Theology for Life. And I've loved this series. And we got several more messages that we're going to preach in it. I'm very, very grateful um, for what we've studied so far. Genesis chapter number three will be there in just a moment. A man by the name of General H.R. McMaster served as the national security advisor to the president from 2017 to 2018. He also has a Ph.D. in American history. This man's main job in the administration was to advise the president on how they should tackle various national security issues, which would have often included uh, military strategies and trade policies and sanctions and, and other things. He said that the most important phase to addressing national security issues was not the solution phase. It's what he called framing the problem. Framing the problem. At times they would spend weeks and even months framing a problem to make sure that they had a thorough understanding of the problem. Their goal was to understand the enemy's approach and the enemy's philosophy better than the enemy themselves. In some sense tonight, we're going to be framing the problem in our sermon. But it's a problem that is far more pervasive than national security. In fact, I would argue that this problem is what causes national security issues. We're going to be talking about the problem of sin. The theology of sin is the topic of the sermon tonight. Paul David Tripp says sin is the ultimate bomb. Leaving a trail of destruction in its path. Sin is the ultimate pandemic infecting everyone, leaving everyone sick. Sin is the ultimate curse, sentencing everyone to death. Sin is the ultimate deceit, telling you endless lies and making promises it can't keep. Sin is the ultimate interruption, changing the human story forever. I I find it ironic that we're preaching the theology of sin tonight. On the hills of such a tragedy in Nashville, that is the direct result of sin. And the evilness and the wickedness of sin. And if it weren't for the grace of God in your life and in my life, we could be a murderer too. Because all of us are really, really bad sinners at the core. For our sermon tonight, we're going to have two main points. We're going to talk about the doctrine of sin itself. And then we're going to talk a little bit about the implications of sin. And I really think this can help you. So I know everybody's got a long day at work tomorrow. And you you might be tempted to be distracted with that. I want you to tune in tonight. I think this can help you. You're in God's house to hear God's word. So let's let's just get all in tonight, okay? Number one, understanding the doctrine of sin. We're going to look at two places of scripture, one in Genesis 3, one in Psalm 51, to help us understand a little bit about the doctrine of sin. Adam and Eve's sin is where we'll start. Their disobedience in the garden is, is really just a teaching point for us to help us to understand the nature of sin. We've got to understand a couple things from, from this episode um, in the garden as it relates to sin. The first thing we have to understand is Satan's deceitful pitch. Look at Genesis 3 in the first five verses. Now the serpent was more subtle than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said unto the woman, Yea, hath God said, Ye shall not eat of every tree of the garden. And the woman said unto the serpent, 
We may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, ye shall not eat of it, neither shall ye touch it, lest ye die. And the serpent said unto the woman, ye shall not surely die. Now I want you to pay close attention to verse 5. For God doth know that in the day ye eat thereof, then your eyes shall be opened, and ye shall be as gods, knowing good and evil. I want you to get this. Satan isn't tempting Eve with a better menu than what God has provided her already. He's tempting Eve with with autonomy, self-sufficiency. Here's his pitch. You can be like God. It's not so much about the fruit. It's about what she could be. Think about this. God is the only being who's ever existed that is truly autonomous, that is really self-sufficient. His existence belongs to him to do with it whatever is his good pleasure, right? There's no law above God. He's answerable to no one he never has been. He's always been completely self-providing and self-sufficient. And this is what Satan is pitching to Eve. Eve, you can be like this. The attraction is far more than fruit. It is God-like autonomy and self-sufficiency. That's the deceitful pitch, but it doesn't stop there. We see Satan's seductive hook in verse 6. And when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was pleasant to the eyes, and a tree to be desired to make one wise, she took of the fruit thereof and did eat, and gave also unto her husband with her, and he did The seductive hook that that enslaved or ensnared Eve wasn't that this was the most beautiful fruit that she had ever seen, although it was probably very attractive. No, the, the, the phrase, a tree to be desired to make one wise, is what magnetized Eve. That's the hook. And that phrase should get our attention tonight. Why would Eve be hungry for wisdom When she was already in a perfect relationship with the one who was and is the ultimate source of everything that is wise. What attracted Eve was not just wisdom in itself. Here's what attracted Eve. Autonomous wisdom. That is wisdom that didn't require reliance on and submission to God. Eve wants God's position. She doesn't want to be dependent on God to be wise. She wants to be the all-wise God. In this moment, Eve asserts herself in the middle of her world and makes life all about her. And that's what sin does. It causes us to shrink our world down to the size of our wants and our needs and our feelings. Sin is always selfish. Eugene Peterson says that sin causes us to replace, this is very interesting, the Holy Trinity with a new trinity. He says, but the three personal Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is replaced by a very individualized personal trinity of my holy wants, my holy needs, and my holy feelings. Sin is self-absorbed, sin is self-focused, sin is self-aggrandizing, and the selfishness of sin, church, is fundamental to understanding it. Satan will give his deceitful pitch and then he'll set his seductive hooks in such a way that appeals to our desire to worship and please ourselves. Now I want you to turn to Psalm 51 if you brought your Bible. Psalm 51, if not, it'll be on the screen. This is David's confession of his sin with Bathsheba. If you're not familiar with King David's sin with Bathsheba, he committed adultery with this woman that he saw bathing. 
And he used his power to to bring her over to him and and to to sleep with her. And then he tried to hide it. He even even orchestrated a murder to try to cover it up. It was a very, very wicked time in his life. But then he repents. He gets right with the Lord. And Psalm 51 is this psalm that he wrote to to, uh, record kind of his emotions and, and his prayer and his heart toward his sin. In his expression over, over his grief for his sin, he calls sin by three different names. This helps us to understand what sin is. He says sin is iniquity. He said sin is transgression. And he says sin is, well, sin. And so I want to go through those three things to understand a little bit more about sin. He calls it first iniquity. Look at verse 1 through 3 of Psalm 51. Have mercy upon me, O God, according to thy loving kindness, according to... Under the multitude of thy tender mercies, blot out my transgressions, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity, and cleanse me from my sin. For I acknowledge my transgressions, and my sin is ever before me. Against thee, thee only, have I sinned, and done this evil in thy sight, that thou mightest be justified when thou speakest, and be clear when thou judgest. Behold, I was shapen in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Let's talk about this word iniquity. It means moral impurity. This word alerts us to the fact that sin, I want you to get this, it's deeper than just behavior. Yes, sin results in us doing what is wrong in God's eyes, but sin doesn't begin with what we do. That's not where sin starts. Sin is an actual condition. It's an inescapable state of being that causes us to rebel against God's authority and to break his law. Did you see verse 5 again? I was shapen in iniquity. In sin did my mother conceive me. David's confessing that his problem is not only that he did what was sinful, but even more significantly, he is a sinner. you got to get the difference. Pay careful attention to what I'm about to say. David doesn't have a problem with sin only when he does something wrong. He has a problem with sin all the time because he's a sinner. It's part of his nature. It was as much a part of David's nature when he came into the world as a baby as the fact that being a biological man was part of his nature. He's not a man because on occasion he does male things. No, he he did things that only a man could do because he was by nature a man. And David is confessing that sin is a condition he inherited at birth. We know this is true because the Apostle Paul says in Romans that sin entered in the world because of our first parent. Because of Adam. You were shaped in iniquity. You were were birthed as a sinner. You didn't become a sinner. You didn't become bad. By nature... By nature, in your DNA, was this thing called sin. Number two, he says it's transgression. Transgression. To transgress is to willingly and knowingly cross boundaries that an authority has set. When we transgress, we we trespass into a place God never designed for us to go. Like if you're looking for a parking place on a busy city street, perhaps, and you see an open spot. But you also see a no parking sign there. If you were to park there anyway, you had transgressed. 
I didn't say, I didn't go to like the speed limit because that hits a little too close to home. (laughs) The word transgression points us to the high handed rebellion of sin. The presumptuousness of sin. It's when we reject God's authority and his law and in turn set ourselves up as our own authority. Transgression is choosing to disobey God because there is something more important to me than loving, serving and obeying my master. And it's deeper than just disobeying God's law. Sin is much more than than just breaking an abstract set of uh, regulations that have been passed down by a holy God. No, sin is more than that. It's the breaking of relationship with God that then leads us to break his commands. Sin is a relational transgression before it's a moral transgression. In fact, one of the ways that the Bible helps us to understand the, the seriousness of our rebellion is to characterize it as spiritual adultery, a relational transgression. Consider the words of Jeremiah in Jeremiah 3, verse 6 through 10. These are stinging words, they're strong words, they're uncomfortable words. He said, the Lord said, do you have this back there, Kelby? Oh, you don't? Everybody go to Jeremiah 3. Jeremiah chapter 3. Look at verse 6 through 10. I want you to see these words. Okay, Jeremiah 3, verse 6. The Lord said also unto me in the days of Josiah the king, Hast thou seen that which backsliding Israel hath done? She has gone up upon every high mountain under every green tree, and there hath played the harlot. And I said after she done all these things, Turn thou unto me. But she returned not, and her treacherous sister Judah saw it. And I saw when for all the causes whereby backsliding Israel committed adultery, I had put her away. And given her a bill of divorce. Yet her treacherous sister Judah feared not, but went and played the harlot also. And it came to pass through the likeness of her whoredom that she defiled the land and committed adultery with stones and, and with stocks. And yet for all this, her treacherous sister Judah hath not turned unto me with her whole heart, but feignedly said, The Lord, saith the Lord. And the Lord said unto me, The backsliding Israel hath justified herself more than treacherous Judah. That's raw. That's kind of hard for me to read. It shows us how serious sin is. Every sin is an act of vertical unfaithfulness. Every sin is adultery at the most profound heart level. Do we not blush at at adultery within marriages? Do we not not just balk at that? Don't we detest that as believers? Doesn't mean we don't forgive it, but doesn't that cause something to check in our spirit? That's what we do toward the Father. When we sin and transgress. See, our hearts are always ruled and our lives are shaped by the love of something. And it needs to be said that that spiritual adultery is not just about loving bad things. No, love of even a good thing becomes a bad thing when it becomes a heart ruling thing. So transgression is deeply immoral, not just because we willingly step over the boundaries of God's law, but more importantly, because we give the love of our hearts to things other than God. And because we do just that, we end up disobeying God's commands. Then he just calls it sin. He calls it several times in Psalm 51. He calls it 
Sin. A popular definition of sin is this, missing the mark. I've always heard the illustration that that it's an archer that's aiming at a target and and he misses the bullseye just a little bit to the right or just a little bit to the left every time. But I think a better and more biblical way of defining sin is that every arrow of the archer falls short of the target entirely. It's not that it gets close to the bullseye. I think lying in front of the target are hundreds of arrows representing hundreds of attempts to reach the desired standard and every single one of them falls short. At some point it becomes clear that the archer, no matter how committed or skilled he is, can never pull back the arrow enough to get it to the target. Isn't that what the Apostle Paul says? Apostle Paul says, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. You, we, we like to think, man, I, I can get cu- kind of close to the bullseye on this day and then not close on this. No, we're just really far away from the glory of God. The word sin, I think, gets at our moral weakness. Our inability to live up to God's holy standard. When it, when it comes to sin, it's, it's not just that we, we won't do what's right. That's called rebellion. It's that we can't do what's right. Do you get the difference? It's an inability. I'm thinking of, I think it's John chapter 5, I could be wrong, where, where there's a lame man that's been, been laying at the pool of Bethsaida for years, I think 38 years or something like that. You can read it on your own. And it, he has never been able to get to the pool until Jesus comes by and gives some divine intervention and, and, and helps him. It's not that the lame man wouldn't, it's that the lame man couldn't. And I think as just fundamentally for us to understand sin, we are morally weak. We are, we are morally lame. It's not that we're just unwilling. It's that we are unable to do what we're supposed to do. It's that we are unable to be what we are created to be. That's what sin does to the human being. That's why we have to have divine intervention. We have to. We don't just get to pick up ourselves by the bootstraps and say, I'm going to be a Christian today. Jesus has to pass by. The Holy Spirit has to draw us to a point of salvation. We have to be able to hear the good news of the gospel. That's why it's so important for us as believers to make sure that we understand just how sinful we are and how sinful people are. I think if we understood how much sin messes us up and separates us from a holy God, we would evangelize better. I don't think we often think of sin as so debilitating. We don't. That's a basic understanding of sin. Let let me help you understand the implications of sin now. Because this is theology for life. How does it show up? Well, I think you would agree, wouldn't you, that sin is incredibly pervasive in our everyday lives. Would you agree with that? To help you fathom how, how much it invades our space. I want you for a minute just, just to imagine a world free of sin. Can you imagine that? I'm going to help you. For the next five minutes or so, I'm going to help you. I want you to imagine how much easier your marriage would be if there was no such thing as sin. Imagine the joy of untainted unity and understanding and love with your spouse. Untainted. 
Imagine living in this lifelong union with no mixed motives. Motives, No susceptibility to unfaithfulness. No selfish conflict. Imagine sex never being selfish or impure. Imagine money never seducing and never being a battleground in your relationship. Imagine marriage never becoming dark and violent. Imagine extended family never igniting loyalty battles. Imagine love uncorrupted by sin for decade after decade after decade. Wouldn't you like a sin-free marriage? Imagine parenting your sin, your, your sin, your, war, your children. Mercy. Parenting your children in a world where sin never got in the way. Do we have any frustrated parents in here tonight? Imagine being patient and kind toward your children all the time. I'm talking not even struggling with impatience. Imagine your children always having a heart to obey, desiring to do what is right, living free of the temptation to go their own way. Imagine complete family cooperation and servanthood and love. Imagine never being heartsick over your children or feeling guilt for how you've responded toward them in anger. Imagine being at perfect peace with the choices your children make. Imagine never fearing what they're up to when they're outside of your house. Imagine anger and rebellion never getting in the way of a loving relationship with your kids. Imagine no child ever being abused in any way. Think about having friendships tonight that require no work. They just come easy. Sin never interferes. You never have a petty disagreement. There's never selfish jealousies. Never entitled demands. Imagine always being willing to serve and to give to your friend. Imagine no one taking a quick offense and no misunderstanding getting in the way of your friendship. Imagine never having to confess or forgive or restore or reconcile a friendship because it never got fractured in the first place. I want you to imagine for a moment you worked at a job unaffected by sin. Some of you gave a little chuckle because that seems like heaven. Well, that will be heaven. But it's not now, is it? Imagine every boss being motivated by sincere love for each worker and commitment to their welfare before his. Imagine the workplace free of selfish competition, backstabbing, jealousy, deceit, and thievery. Imagine a working environment where people were more important than money. Where love was more highly valued than success. Where decisions were made with pure motivation. I want you to imagine for a moment, never dreading going into work. Your career not leaving you emotionally spent. Never wishing you could finally do something other than what you're paid to do. Imagine there being no such thing as corrupt government. Every politician was upright and trustworthy. Every civil servant loved people more than power. Every citizen feeling cared for, protected, and living unafraid. No, imagine no national scandals. 
No citizens with criminal intent. No violence anywhere to be found. Imagine every level of government run by people who always do what is right and good all the time. Wow. Even more personal, examine your own life. Examine your own heart. Examine your own track record. What would your story be like? What would your life be like? What would your relations be like tonight if they were not stained and twisted by sin? Imagine doing everything out of a pure heart of love and worship for God. Imagine never being wrongfully angry. Imagine never saying a word that wasn't motivated by love and a desire to give grace to the hearer. Imagine never wanting to be the center of attention. And now imagine never being attracted to what lies behind God's boundaries for your life. Uh, imagine always loving what is true and always speaking the truth. Imagine a world and a life free of sin. Why do I say all of that? Because I'm afraid we're so used to a sin-stained world. It's so much a part of our normal daily lives that we've lost sight of the fact that it has messed up everything. It's evaded everything. I'm afraid we've gotten so used to the whore that we live with every day. I'm afraid we forgot that sin makes everything in our life more difficult and dangerous than God ever intended it to be. I'm afraid that that what should deeply disturb us doesn't disturb us at all. What was never meant to be has become what we now wake up and expect. I'm afraid that things should get our things that should get our attention and break our hearts are so routine now that they barely bother us. I'm afraid that we learn to live alongside what we should be mourning. I'm afraid that the presence of sin in us and around us has become so familiar that it doesn't even make us sad. My point is that there are so many daily implications that come into our lives because of sin. I can't cover them all, but it is a very serious, serious matter. Here's a few. Sin is a matter of the heart that requires a heart level solution. I want you to look at Jeremiah chapter 13, verse number 23. Can the Ethiopian change his skin? Consider that question. Can he do that? Can the leopard his spots change his spots? Then may ye also do good that are accustomed to do evil. Now I want you to give what the prophet's saying. He's saying the sinner can't escape his sin, which is a part of who he constitutionally is, any more than a black-skinned Ethiopian has the power to alter the beauty of God's design of his physical appearance. Then he talks about the leopard. It's just as impossible for people who are by nature sinners to become good in God's eyes as it is for a leopard to decide that he no longer wants to be spotted. You could shave that cat down to its skin and it would grow a new pelt that is still spotted. Why? Because spottedness is wired into the nature of that animal and he is hopeless to relieve himself of his spots. That's what the prophet's saying. Likewise, sin is fundamentally a problem of the heart. It's not just a behavior problem. 
If our problem was simply that we do wrong things, then these various systems of behavioral management and reform could help us deal with the problem. But because sin is in fact a problem of the heart, then listen to me, lasting change in a person's behavior will always travel first through the pathway of the heart. If it's a problem of the heart, it's got to be addressed at the heart level. Which destroys statements like this that we often say, I'll just do better next time. Well, that was just a weak moment. A lapse in judgment. I'm smarter than I used to be. I think I've learned what I need to avoid in the future. No, killing sin is more than coming up with a do better strategy for tomorrow. But the fact that sin originates in the heart also destroys our ability to say that the main problem is something outside of us. And we say these things all the time. You don't know what my boss is like. Well, pastor, it's been a really tough month. Well, I did that because I wasn't feeling well. Hey, I didn't come on to her. She came on to me. He pushes my buttons and he knows he does. Well, you haven't met my children. Listen to what Jesus said in the gospel of Luke. A good man. Luke 6, 45, out of the good treasure of his heart, bringeth forth that which is good. And an evil man, out of the evil treasure of his heart, bringeth forth that which is evil. For the abundance of the heart, his mouth speaketh. It comes from inside. So what's the heart level solution? Well, here's the first thing. We must humbly confess that when it comes to sin, our biggest problem is us. It's us. We're led astray, not primarily by things outside of us, by the thought, but by the thoughts and desires and motivations and cravings and choices of our own sinful heart. I don't know about you, but it's humbling to me that that I have to confess that I have no power whatsoever to change my own heart. Lasting change is only ever an act of divine grace. And that's what we do next. We first admit That sin is a problem with us. And then secondly, we run to our Savior. We get to the cross. We find His rescue. We find His grace. We find His redemption. We find the transformation that only He can provide. Practically, believer, you daily submit yourself to the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit in your life. You you reckon yourself dead to sin and alive to Christ. You yield your members to the Spirit of God and continually live a life of daily repentance and fighting of your sin in the power and the grace and the strength of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what you do. You don't put band-aids on sin problems. It won't work. If there's a sin problem in your marriage, you just don't need a self-help book. If you're struggling with a relationship at work, you don't need the next best podcast. All of those things God can use as a means to give you good wisdom. But at the core of all of our relationship conflict, at the core of all of our problem is sin. And that resides in every one of us. Fix you. Fix me. How? Run to Jesus. Run to him every day. Surrender to him every day. Yield to the Spirit every day. Then walk in the Spirit every moment. 
When you mess up, confess and repent. Do not persist. Yield, 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 yield. And Jesus will help you. Here's the second thing. Sin is deceitful and blinding. Man, there are so many layers to this dynamic. The fact that sin is is deceptive. Listen closely. Sin is a liar. Are you listening to me? It's a liar. It makes promises to us that it will never keep. It instills hope in us that it will never fulfill it. It paints dreams for us that will quickly evaporate. It makes bargains with us that it will break. You know what it also does? It also presents as beautiful what God says is ugly. Like when you're on your third burger, you're not seeing the danger of gluttony, are you? You're experiencing the pleasure of juicy meat, dripping cheese, and the soft bun. It's true. More seriously, when you're lusting after a woman, you're not seeing the destruction that it's doing to your heart. You're enjoying the temporary pleasure of your fantasy. When materialism has you spending money you don't have on things you don't need. You're not feeling the danger of your greed. You're taken up with the pleasure of your new possessions. That's why Tripp says this. Sin is an evil monster masquerading as your best friend. Sin is a slave trader masquerading as your liberator. Sin is a grim reaper masquerading as a life giver. Sin is destruction masquerading as fulfillment. Darkness masquerading as light. Foolishness masquerading as wisdom. Sin is disease masquerading as a cure. It's a trap masquerading as a gift. No matter how it presents itself to you, sin is never what it appears to be and will never deliver what it promises. Do you agree with that tonight? You know what else it does? It lulls us into minimizing our transgressions. I'm talking about the deceptiveness of sin. One of its tricks, the way it plays out, the way it deceives is that it causes us to minimize our sin. We fall into thinking that our anger is inconsequential. That that the little lie doesn't make much of a difference. That our gossip won't hurt anyone. That our impatience is just part of life. Or that everyone is envious every once in a while. In the endless private conversations that we all have with ourselves, we're either reminding ourselves of the seriousness of sin or we're working to convince ourselves that our sin isn't that sinful after all. And we're having that conversation in our head almost every day, all day. What do we do to overcome the deceitfulness of sin? We run to the Savior to to, to overcome the fact that, that, that sin is a heart problem. He's the only one that can change the heart. What do we do to help overcome the deceitfulness of sin? Hebrews chapter 3 tells us. Take heed, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God. But exhort one another daily while it is called today, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. I want you to get this. Our susceptibility to personal spiritual blindness is apparently so great. That the author of Hebrews says, we need daily intervention. Daily exhortation. And he says this, it comes by way of other believers. That's what he says. We need other people's eyes to help us see what we can't see. And does that not rub up against our obsession with privacy in America today? Doesn't it go against the grain of even Christians that say things like this? Mind your own business. Only God can judge me. 
Well, the Bible clearly says there that a means of grace for the believer to keep from getting deceived by sin is other believers around them, exhorting them and intervening in their lives. Not every once in a while. Every day. Daily, while it is today, before tomorrow. Because tomorrow is when your heart gets hard. So he says today. While your heart is still pliable, you need someone to show you what's wrong. Today. That tells me two things. We need to have humility and approachability to the other Christians in our life. If the Bible clearly tells us that without other believers calling out our sin, we won't know it's there. Then we better be open to other believers calling out our sin. Not just the preacher. But I mean, I mean, believers that you do life with, believers in your connection group, believers you worship with and sing with on Sundays. We cannot develop a culture within our congregation that says the pastor is the only one that can tell me how to live. No, sir. No, ma'am. Other Christians are responsible. The Bible says, First Thessalonians, to warn the unruly. James chapter five, go after the wanderer. That is a Christian's responsibility. Ye which are spiritual, restore such a one in the spirit of meekness. Considering myself, lest thou also be tempted. He didn't say, ye which are pastors, restore such an one. Ye which are spiritual. Christians that walk in the spirit. Christians that have the, the spiritual fruit from being yielded to the spirit. You are candidates for helping people with their blind spots. If you don't tell them today... If you don't point it out today because it makes you uncomfortable. Then what is their heart going to be like tomorrow? Hello, mom and dad. If you don't tell your teenager right now, right now, if you don't tell them no today. Then they might start liking that sin a little bit more tomorrow. Be strong in the Lord, be gracious, be gentle, but be courageous. I'm here to tell you, I need you. Pastors aren't off limits from their people. Some of you I golf with. Some of you have been around my table. Some of you see me in the good, the bad, and the ugly. I'm giving you permission, brother. Speak into my life. I need you. If you see me prideful, tell me. If you see me fearful, tell me. If you see me impulsive, tell me. If you see me treating my wife bad, tell me. If you see me angry, tell me. And church member, let other people tell you. I, I am, I, I am, I'm weary of the fact that there seems to be a culture where we tell the pastor about other people's faults. Pastor, go deal with that for me. Like we're in elementary school and we go tell the principal. Why don't you go to your sister? Why don't you go to your brother first? Why don't you read Matthew 18? It never says go get two or three first. You go to your brother or sister. Let's build that culture of approachability and then humble, gentle restoration in our church. It's so important or else we are all going to be victims of, of the blind spots in our life. That's an area of passion for me. Here, let me give you one more. We'll go home. Because of sin, life is war. Ephesians 6, finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God 
that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. Wherefore, take in you the whole armor of God, that ye may be able to stand in the evil day, and having done all to stand. Does that look like a picnic in the park to you? Does that suggest that the Christian ought to be living with a peacetime mentality or a wartime mentality? Anytime I hear the word armor, I'm not putting armor on to go to the park. Putting armor on to go to war. And because sin is so pervasive in our life and so real in our life, listen, every day you are in a battle. With sin, with the flesh, with the world, with the devil, with the lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, the pride of life. You've got to armor up every day. You've got to go with gospel power every day. You've got to be prayed up every day. You've got to be walking with the Spirit every day. Are you going to get picked off? It's a war, friend. When did King David make his biggest mistake or his most public mistake? When he was relaxed. All the other kings had gone to war. He stayed at home. It was peacetime for him. And he lost his vigilance. And when we lose our vigilance, our adversary, the devil, who's walking about, is going to devour us. We must have a wartime mentality. Well, how long, pastor? Until you get to heaven. Because when you get to heaven, you can put down the sword. Put to heaven, there's no need for armor. When you get to heaven, the lion's going to lay down with the lamb. In fact, the infant's going to lay down by the lion and be just fine. You want peace? You'll get peace. The king of kings is ready to battle. As soon as God tells him, he's ready to battle. And he will win. He will win. If you read the end, he will win. But until then, don't expect peace. It's war. And it's war because it's sin. And the moment we start getting relaxed, the moment we put down the sword and the helmet and the shield and the shoes and the prayer... The moment we put down the armor of God is the moment that the devil has a heyday with us. So stay strong. Stay vigilant. If you're tired, wake up. It's wartime. If you're fatigued, get hydrated. It's wartime. If you're about to give up, get back in the fight. It's wartime. If you're a believer, let's go. Fight sin. Live in repentance. Don't give in to it. Don't get discouraged. We got some new Christians in here. The devil's going to be all over you. All over you. He is ticked off that you are on God's army now. Don't slow down. Don't retreat. Don't back up. Get some believers in this church that are mature in the Lord. Let them surround your marriage. Let them surround your kids. Get here every time the doors are open. It's wartime. It's wartime. Let's fight. Amen? Stand to your feet every head.